Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the Center in person and online. I'm Melody Rowell, the Center's podcast producer. The Supreme Court is debating the constitutional scope of the administrative state more vigorously than at any time since the New Deal. Cases before the court deal with a range of issues, from the Environmental Protection Agency's regulation of carbon emissions to the federal government's vaccine mandates. On today's episode, we'll look at the past, present, and future of the administrative state with three guests. Lisa Heinzerling is the Justice William J. Brennan Jr. Professor of Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. Elon Werman is an associate professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University and author of The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. And William J. Novak is the Charles F. and Edith J. Klein Professor of Law at the University of Michigan School of Law and author of New Democracy, The Creation of the Modern American State. Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content at the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on May 10th, 2022. Here's Lana to get the conversation started. Welcome, friends, to the National Constitution Center and to today's America's Town Hall program. I'm Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content at the Center, and I'll be the moderator for today's discussion. So thank you so much for joining us, Lisa Heiserling, Elon Werman, and Bill Novak. So, Bill, I thought I would start with you and ask you about your new book, New Democracy. In your book, you write that between the period of 1866 and 1932, which was between the Civil War and the New Deal, that the American system of governance was fundamentally transformed with momentous implications for modern American and social life, and that the 19th century traditions of local self-government and associative citizenship were replaced by a modern approach to positive statecraft, social legislation, economic regulation, and public administration that is still with us today. And you also note that the last such formative transformation of American public life was in the late 18th century. It was dubbed by historian Gordon Wood as the, quote, creation of the American Republic, and that this later turn of the century revolution uh, was best characterized as the creation of the modern American state. Can you tell us more about this period? Why did you choose to write about it? And why was it uh, the period that led to the creation of the modern American state? Sure. Uh, great to be with you, Lana, and great to be with distinguished colleagues uh, on the panel and at the National Constitution Center. I think this is great work um, uh, you're all doing. Um, so, so New Democracy, the creation of the modern American state, is a kind of sequel to my first book, which was called People's Welfare, Law and Regulation in 19th Century America. And it's really part of a kind of larger uh, project. I'm now currently uh, working in the, I'm trying to retrain myself as an 18th century historian to go back and look at the American founding and all with a goal of trying to chart historically this long and deep history of regulation, administration, legislation, and public governance, public law governance in the United States uh, that goes right back to the early Republic and sort of writing history of that tradition uh, and, and suggesting how robust that tradition was before the New Deal, because I think we have a lot of myths that we carry around, historical myths uh, about American constitutional history that suggest, oh, it's the New Deal. It's Franklin Roosevelt, where we finally get an active regulatory administrative state in the United States. And before that, the U.S. was a land of laissez-faire and private initiative and self-reliance and rugged individualism and property and contract. And uh, my work, I hope, 
uh, of life's work will 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 try to challenge um, these kind of fictions and myths and show that once you start looking for it, once you scratch beneath the surface of some of our kind of uh, national uh, mythology, um, it's easy to see. And we have other colleagues now who are working on um, regulation and administration from the earliest days of the Republic uh, uh, to the New Deal that suggests regulation uh, and administration has always been with us, uh, robust forms of government policymaking in the name of kind of democracy. So this book I call New Democracy. Um, I think that's right. Gordon Wood uh, writes a history of the rise of kind of a democratic moment, the, the original moment of American democracy in the late 18th century. These people from 1866 to 1932, before Franklin Roosevelt comes into office, are busy trying to now create democratic policies for a mass society and economy, which is a big lift indeed. Great. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, we'll definitely return um, to the book and to the history a little bit more. Uh, Lisa, I wanted to ask you, since you are um, more of a lawyer than a historian, but you have worked actively on a lot of the current issues that um, are being tackled by the modern administrative state that we have today. Um, and it feels a little bit, you know, like like today we are in a bit of a transformative period as well. And I'm just wondering if from your perspective, you know, working in the field, do you see any parallels between this period of time that Bill has written about and today um, in relationship to some of the issues that are being tackled by the administrative state and the government? Yes, I think that this uh, work, new work by Bill, is so important because we find ourselves in a moment where we are completely captivated by, at least the judges and the justices are, and the rest of us are captive too, I would say, the myths that Bill is talking about, the notion that we have not had a powerful government, that Congress didn't delegate authority uh, quite broadly and vaguely to the administrative agencies that do the daily work of our government. Those are really powerful myths on today's Supreme Court. And what I would add to that is that they empower a project that is deeply destructive of that administrative state that we've established over the years. So let me just say a couple of things about that. One, the justices on the Supreme Court today purport to be originalists, but they're not historians. They're not careful historians. They're not people who comb through all of the um, all of the histories and come up with uh, the answer. It's quite clear that they cherry pick uh, analysis and so forth, so that a project steeped in history is really useful for surfacing some of the myths that they're dealing with. But in addition, they're using their understanding about the structure of the Constitution to embark on a project that I think threatens to remake American government. And let me just give you two examples. One is uh, we have long had agencies, administrative agencies. Think about the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission. You may not out there in the audience have ever heard of these agencies. Maybe you think that they don't affect you. They do. Almost everything you do is affected by the power of administrative agency, either not to protect you or to protect you. And what the Supreme Court has embarked on is, I think, a project to limit Congress's ability to make at least some of those institutions independent from the president to some extent. 
And so that the notion that this, this, this sense of the history and what the Constitution means in light of that history is incredibly important to that project because I think the justices, the conservative justices really believe that we were once in the Garden of Eden and we followed the Constitution and then along came Franklin Delano Roosevelt and we've been banished. And they want to restore that original order. And one of the ways they'll do that, I think, is to make agencies even closer to the political process and the president. The other way that I think is even more destructive is that at least five of the conservative justices have served notice that they are prepared to begin enforcing with some rigor a principle known as the non-delegation principle, which is the idea that Congress can't delegate its legislative powers to any other institution. And the idea among the the conservative justices appears to be that the way they'll police that is to look and see if an important policy question was in the works. And if Congress gave that policy question to an agency, then that might be unconstitutional. And I will tell you, you can look through the United States statute books and on every other page, find what will be a, a probably a plausible constitutional question about the validity of that statute if the Supreme Court goes down this road. So that's why I think it's quite threatening to the established order. Thank you, Lisa, for um, bringing us to today and setting up some of those issues as well, which I think we'll dig into a little bit more when we talk about some specific cases that the current court is facing as, uh, in its current term. So, Elon, Lisa mentioned a couple um, interesting doctrines, including non-delegation. I know you've written an article um, called Non-Delegation at the Founding, so you've dug into the history a little bit and also write about the current court. You also write about originalism as well. So feel free to re- respond to both Bill setting up his book and the history of that period and also what Lisa said about um, the state of delegation today and how the, the current court's thinking about it. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me here. It's really delightful to be able to, um, I guess, be the gadfly uh, to cast some uh, 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 skepticism about some of the things uh, that we're hearing, though not much. I actually agree with a, a lot. Um, I've read Bill's book. I actually thought today was about Bill's book. Uh, tr- it turns out where it's broader and it's, it's a great book, just like his first one. Um, but I do, uh, you know, have some some questions about it, and then I'll, I guess, fast forward uh, to to the modern day. Uh, so I agree that there's a lot of this sort of mythology about uh, lack of administration uh, in the founding era. But even Bill says in his book uh, that there was a transformation of some kind. I think his argument is that it occurred earlier than the New Deal uh, in the period that he discusses. So he talks about the increased proliferation and professionalization and centralization and rationalization of administration. But arguably, there also was another transformation uh, that he talks less about, uh, but I think is actually more important to the modern attacks on the administrative state. Uh, And this goes to to a bit more of what uh, Lisa was saying about non-delegation, but at least the conservatives say, or the formalists or the originalists, I mean, how these all connect is is a complicated uh, a, a question, uh, but they might say that as a result of or in addition to the transformation that Professor Novak talks about, there was arguably a transformation in executive power in that independent agencies insulated from removal now wielded administrative power. Uh, I don't think the uh, Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887 was actually particularly new. 
for a lot of the reasons we've heard about. I, I, they adjudicated things, but it's not clear that they adjudicated private rights matters. Uh, they uh, exercised some regulatory power, but so did the early departments. But it was new to create this bipartisan multi-member commission that's supposed to be independent of the president. Uh, so that was a transformation. Uh, there was subsequently, in the New Deal especially, I think, a transformation with respect to judicial power, if you believe, and it's contested, but if you believe, as many originalists believe, that private rights cases, as opposed to public rights cases, I mean, private rights cases are classic, either the government's trying to take away your life, liberty, or property, or it's just a dispute between two private individuals. Historically, these had to be heard in Article Three courts. Uh, starting in the New Deal, uh, it, well, a little before the New Deal, actually, in a seminal case called Crowell against Benson, the Supreme Court basically uh, authorized agencies uh, to resolve either facts or eventually legal questions in private rights cases that historically had to be done by judges, decided by judges. And then there was arguably a transformation in legislative power. Uh, uh, arguably, the delegations uh, did change. I'm you know, more of a, a moderate, I guess, about this than a lot of my formalist uh, friends. I think there's, you know, so some people like Justice Thomas, uh, Philip Hamburger, uh, maybe Gary Lawson, uh, maybe Justice Gorsuch, they think as long if an agency makes any regulation that affects private rights or conduct or private rights and obligations, it's legislative power. I'm skeptical. I mean, the 1852 Steamboat Act uh, allowed the steamboat inspectors to make passenger limits on ships, uh, to make rules for passing ships, what happens, uh, you know, who, if you're upstream or downstream and what side you're on, who gets to go. Those affect private rights. It affects private conduct. And I doubt uh, that is something uh, that we think Congress has to specify uh, sort of the details about. But arguably um, today, uh, agencies do a lot more uh, regulation of private rights and conduct under broader delegations than they did in the past. It's not to say there weren't broad delegations in the past. There were, but a lot of it was um, in public rights contexts like veterans' pensions. Uh, um, a lot of it did not involve you know, private rights and conduct. I do think some of it did. I do think some of it did. And that's a challenge for formalists and originalists. Um, but I do think there was a kind of a transformation now, uh, I guess I'll, since I've gone on too long, I'll say one more thing and I'll stop there. And th this will be fighting words for, for Bill. So Bill in his book says that the um, these transformations and modern administration uh, uh, claimed a democratic mandate, right? That's why he calls it democracy. Uh, and that may be, I have no quibbles with his history. I mean, he's a much better historian uh, than I am, uh, but it's important to understand. And he's he's very open about this. What he means by democracy is what he calls substantive democracy, right? This progressive understanding of democracy where it's not just, you know, who rules, right? But it's also a, a substantively democratic way of life involving social and economic equality as well. So that is one possible definition of democracy, right? But if democracy is connected to the idea that our elected officials should be making the important policy choices affecting private rights and that our elected officials should be executing the laws. Well, under that, I think, more traditional uh, definition, uh, Bill would have a harder time showing that the administrative state has a democratic mandate. And with those fighting words, I send it back to you two. 
Thanks, Elon, for that perspective and for um, digging in a little bit more to Bill's book um, that we can get a little bit more color on some of the um, things that you write about, Bill. Feel free to address any of the points that he said. And Elon mentioned this idea or I guess definition of formalism. Um, And I know in your book, you talk a little bit about how a modern administrative law emerged out of democratically oriented anti-formalism. So maybe, you know, address, of course, anything that Elon said, and then talk a little bit about this distinction between formalism and anti-formalism and how that led to this radical, critical, and as you say, more democratic outcome. Uh, and that's a great point. It's a, it's a kind of one of the more intricate themes of the book, but there's no question that, and I would argue it has 19th century roots as well, but in this early 20th, 20th century period, we have a group of people who consider themselves anti-formalists and a critical realist. Um, they're pragmatists, they're critical realists, and they are quite incredible critics uh, of judicial formalism and legal formalism. And they, precisely because they're not as worried about, and I'll, I'll address Elon's point about uh, democratic administration in a, mo- in a moment, but what, who, where, where do the progressives think anti-democracy lies at the turn of the 20th century? In the courts. They, they begin with a critique that the, this is an undemocratic, counter-majoritarian institution that is frustrating over and over again, as they see it, this is the Lochner interpretation, frustrating the will of the people to try to pass laws that solve public problems. And this is one of, my, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, is to try to get away from the abstract formalist mythologies that we sometimes carry around and look at why governmental regulations were adopted in the first place, right? In this place, in, in this period, the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, I mean, women are dying, being locked into hideous working conditions, right? Uh, Upton Sinclair and, the, and the, the, the product of food poisoning. I mean, there were real public problems that needed to be solved. And over and over again, the progressives did indeed, as Elon suggested, and as Lisa, Lisa also uh, acknowledged, turn to administration. Now, I'd like to make one more point on that because I think Elon challenged. Uh, I think this there is a great deal of skepticism today um, that administration is undemocratic and that these other branches of government are the democratic responses. And I think by going back to at least this period where a, a modern administration is formed, uh, we can see the democratic aspects. In the very first kind of state regulatory administrative agencies that are developed in the case of railroads, here comes this big corporation, right, that, that's challenging all conventional ways of controlling it in the late 19th century. Um, why didn't we just rely on the courts and the legislature or the governor? The, the, the farmers had no chance against the railroads in court, right? And, and the railroads knew it. I mean, if, you, if, a, if a farmer feels a, a, a particular railroad rate is discriminatory, too high, unscrupulous, fraudulent, they're not going to win in court. They have a $10 case, as the reformers said. Um, they're also not going to win in the legislature, right? The word lobby is invented to talk about the railroad lawyers sitting in the lobby of the state capitol, basically owning the legis- the legislature is not a place for a democratic solution here, right? In, in fact, cap- this is Charles Francis Adams, chapters of Erie. The- we're talking about deep corruption of people running away with bags of money, right? The progressive solution is, and, and it's not a final solution, but to look at administration as a place for democratic access. Now the farmer can come to the railroad commissioner and fill out a simple complaint. And now the railroad commission can take that complaint and give it to a state's attorney or county attorney. There's a point of access there 
that is very democratic. Um, so we live today, I think, as, as we've all said, in a, in a period of intense skepticism about governmental power, of administrative discretion, and of too much government. I mean, we've come out of a pandemic in which, right, anti-vaxxing and anti-masking, we're all familiar with how violent resistance can be to even some sort of baseline governmental initiatives. Um, and the, and the, the, the reaction is to run back into some kind of libertarian or liberal uh, interpretation or originalist uh, interpretation of the American past. And I want to suggest, and I, just because I think it's true, not because I have a dog in this fight, it's just true, right? Um, democracy isn't my word. Walter Wheel writes a great book about the progressive period. In that period, he calls it the new democracy. John Dewey is writing about democracy, democracy, democracy. Jane Addams is writing about democracy, that this, the history of America is a history of democracy, and we need to forefront that issue again. Alexis de Tocqueville, when he comes from Europe and looks at the United States in the 1830s, writes a book not called Individualism in America, not called Rights in America, not called Property in America, not called Judicial Authority in America. The book is called Democracy in America. And my book is, I think, part of an effort to recenter both in our judicial conversations and our public conversations, a focus on is the United States still democratic and what are the threats to de democracy? And really, really, what institutions of government do we see now as most of a threat to our democratic aspirations and democratic future? So if we can focus on democracy, I think there we could all agree, we could have different de definitions of it, but let's put that at the center of our, our national constitutional conversation again. That's really interesting, Bill, that you brought that up. Has administration as a place for democratic access? I don't, I think that, yeah, that's not always the way that it's framed, um, both in the history and today. So Lisa, um, do you agree with what Bill was saying about administrative agencies as being a place for democratic access? Is that still true today? And, and again, making the parallels to that era and to, to and to um, what's going on in the courts today, do you see a similar thread with the courts and any skepticism towards regulation? You know, our courts, I think you'd maybe describe as anti-regulatory. If so, why? And some of the issues that Bill brought up, you know, the working conditions, um, these huge societal problems, you know, we now today we have, you know, climate change and he brought up the pandemic. So these larger issues um, that it seems like the administrative agencies are trying to address. And then we have, you know, big cases that are being heard by the courts today, that they're grappling with these questions. So yeah, just interested in, in your thoughts on all those points. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so I, I mean, one, on the historical parallels, of course, I mean, we're in the midst of the worst pandemic in a century, you all know that. And the Supreme Court saw fit to strike down two important rules issued by uh, federal agencies that those agencies thought would um, help to stop or to prevent the further spread of, of uh, COVID-19. And the court struck them down with this idea that, well, we're, Congress has to do this, even though Congress had passed a statute in both cases that ordered agencies to take on major threats to health in the public at large and in the workplace. And so the, the, we still have the kinds of threats that we had, and if anything, they're worse. I haven't even talked about climate change. If anything, they're worse. And yet we are cabined in, I think, by a judiciary 
that is, if not overtly, certainly, obviously, hostile to the administrative state and to ambitious uh, regulatory programs. You can see this in the application of the doctrines that led to the invalidation of these rules, where the court said, we think Congress needs to speak clearly if it's going to take on major questions. So just think about the irony of that. The more important of the issue, the important, more important attention now is to a social problem, the less an agency will be um, empowered to take it on, right? And so that it's, it's really cutting at the knees of the most, probably the most essential parts of the administrative state that Bill described. Right. And so that to me is is uh, deeply threatening. And those decisions this year show a Supreme Court that's very committed, in my opinion, to the anti-regulatory project. Just a couple words about about democracy. I will say that administrative agencies loan among the institutions of the federal government have an obligation to explain themselves. They have to say why they're doing what they're doing. They have to say what gives them the legal authority. They have to have it make sense. And then they have to have their explanation after actually withstand scrutiny by the federal courts, right? It seems to me that that obligation of reason giving gives them, I don't know if it's a democratic pedigree, certainly an accountability that is lacking in the other branches. In addition, I would say that if we're thinking about comparative, it's all comparative. So we're going to talk about comparative democratic kind of natures, then I would much rather have Congress, uh, whose members are at least in theory electorally accountable, that, that have them make decisions about which problems are big enough and how broadly to delegate power than to have the federal courts accountable to no one making decisions about Congress's choices about delegating power to agencies. We're not, we're not just saying hand it over to Congress. We're saying it handed, hand it over to Congress by direction of federal courts under often incredibly partial standards. Um, and then last, I just think somebody has to say a word about democracy in the sense of, um, I think often people will pair the idea of democracy. One of the reasons that we love that and it kind of works as rhetoric is not only that people stand for election and can be thrown out if they're not um, doing the job we want them to do, but somehow that everybody's vote matters equally. Like, it seems like at least out there and people who don't know better in some way, right? They think everybody's vote matters, but look at the Senate. Two senators per state, no matter how small the state. We don't have DC and Puerto Rico as states, so we don't have them in the Senate. We have the filibuster. We have money in politics. We have voter disenfranchisement. So that before we get sort of misty-eyed about democracy and the comparative advantage of one institution over another, then I think we have to take on at least what I think is probably a pretty strong lay understanding of democracy, which isn't just about elections, but about votes counting equally. Thank you, Lisa. Elon, definitely interested on your thoughts about some of Lisa's comments about the courts, um, you know, the role of the courts as opposed to administrative agencies in terms of 
you know, who, who is more democratic, who, you know, has to explain their decisions more. And then she also brought up um, the major questions doctrine, which I think is at issue in the West Virginia versus EPA case, which is, um, which the court, I think, heard argument a couple weeks ago. Can you explain that doctrine as well and the significance um, uh, in it, in, in, in that case, West Virginia versus EPA? Sure. And um, by the time I'm done, I'll probably have forgotten the first question. But let me start with the major questions. <laughs> Um, the, the, this basic idea, I mean, there are a couple of ways you can conceive of the major questions uh, doctrine. One is simply a, a linguistic canon, is that before Congress uh, passes the book on important and controversial questions. Okay? Now, what exactly is important? It's actually not clear. Like, is it just politically controversial? It could be something that's just really significant and important to the statutory scheme, which I'll explain in a second. Before Congress passes the book on a hugely controversial uh, ec economically significant, politically significant question to an agency. Uh, the idea is we'd expect it to do so in relatively clear language. Okay, so we're not saying Congress can't delegate those questions to the agency. It's purely a linguistic question of whether Congress has in fact delegated that question. So uh, an example is uh, Brandon Williamson. The FDA has, has long had authority uh, under its statutes from 1914, 1930s, and so on, uh, to regulate drugs and drug delivery devices. And so these are the things that uh, Flonase and aspirin and uh, you know all of these things are the kinds of drugs uh, that are regulated. And the question in 2001 and the 1990s arose whether the agency uh, could, through that authority, all of a sudden regulate tobacco and cigarettes. Now, it's actually, you know, it's not crazy to think that they do have that authority because it does seem to literally fall under the definition of drugs. Uh, nicotine does and drug delivery device. Cigarettes seem to be a drug delivery device. Uh, but the problem was, you know, the agency had disclaimed authority over more or less over, over tobacco for, you know, 70, 80 years. Congress has several statutes respecting uh, tobacco and cigarettes on the books that would seem inconsistent with the FDA's assertion of regulatory authority. And what the court basically said is, look, before we're going to assume that Congress delegated to this agency uh, this question of hugely political and economic significance that Congress had been fighting about for a long time, where Congress has already legislated, you know, we might demand a clearer statement just because we're trying to get at what Congress, in fact, intended to give the agency to do. That's not crazy if the aim of interpretation is to figure out what the legislator, what the lawgiver, like, intended to accomplish, intended to delegate, whether that's in some tension with textualism is a whole other can of worms, which I don't know if we're going to get into. But just one more example, it doesn't have to be something just that's politically controversial. It could be something that's just major to the statutory scheme. So where this really comes from is a case, I think in 94 or 96 called MCI, where telecommunications company and particularly AT&T, they had to file tariff rates um, with the Federal Communication Commission. It was the central thing that the uh, statute required them to do. But then there was a provision in the statute that says, uh, that the agency may modify the requirements, you know, the various requirements of, of this uh, statute. And so the agency basically said, okay, AT&T, you don't have to file the tariff requirements. 
Like, wait a minute, that was like the central thing that they're supposed to do. And the question was, could Congress possibly have intended to delegate to the agency the power to exempt the nation's largest carrier from the central provision of the statute under so cryptic a term as modify? And so it's not crazy as a linguistic canon, I think. Now, the real question is the non-delegation question. If Congress has delegated these questions, does that violate the non-delegation doctrine? And that also might come into play in West Virginia v. EPA. Uh, but, you know, I don't think because a question is important makes it violate the non-delegation doctrine for Congress to give it away. Uh, you know, I think it has more to do with, OK, what's the nature of the right being regulated? Take a, a recent non-delegation case, Gundy against United States whether the Sex Offender Registration Act applies to sex offenders who were convicted before the act was enacted. Okay, It said, you know, Attorney General, figure out whether we should apply these re registration requirements. Is this important? Is it politically controversial? I don't know, but it's really freaking important for the people who are convicted of these crimes before the act was enacted, right? Uh, and so it can be important for that reason because it deals with criminal law and their life and liberty, you know, uh, are at stake. So, okay, again, I've gone on uh, a bit too long, but those are my initial thoughts on the major questions. Thanks, Elon. Bill, in the history, in the period of history that you write about, was that part of the debate? Were they debating, you know, should should Congress be delegating this? I mean, was that, you know, part of the, the rhetoric of what they were trying to determine in, in creating administrative state and administrative agencies? Were there other things being debated as well. We have a question from Alec Rogers who asks uh, about this distinction between public and private rights, uh, which I think Elon may have mentioned as well. Was that at the heart of the debate? Um, just give us a sense of kind of what was being discussed as these um, changes were occurring. Well, you know, as Cass Sunstein once famously said, right, the non-delegation doctrine has enjoyed one good year and over 200 bad ones, right? I, and maybe, and, and we're trying to resuscitate this thing that had had this uh, this one good year uh, in the early years of the New Deal. Uh, but I would say no, that's not really where the uh, onus is in the progressive period, right? Um, Elon, that was a, a really a nice tutorial on kind of modern day judicial review of administrative action. But let's make it clear, it's within the four corners of still talking about judges and judicial review and elites and a small number of uh, an unelected, <laughs> uh, non-democratic actors making these decisions. The progressives were very critical of the judiciary. They wrote, if you want to see, these are not, I actually think the progressives are quite radical by contemporary standards, but these are not people off the political spectrum. These are people, you know, Harvard Law School professors, people at the center of public policy in this period. And they are proffering some pretty radical solutions and some pretty fierce uh, critiques of the courts because they want to get these public problems solved and they see the courts as an impediment to passing the kind of legislation that is attentive to um, the needs of the people. And I, I, I'm looking at your, 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 we the people is the thing, the democratic focus of the, of the Constitution Center. Uh, and that's what it was for these folks as well. I'll just add one more thing in response to Lisa's uh, great point that when these people are talking about democracy, voting, really important, suffrage, really important, elections, really important, no one would deny it. But as Dewey, Adams et al. constantly said, that's only the start of forming a democratic society and economy. And at the end of the day, as, as Lisa put it well, equality is a baseline condition for a fully functioning democracy. And the fact that our cities in the progressive period, the, the shame of the cities, the problem of the cities, had people voting 
in numbers, record numbers in the early 20th century in St. Louis and other in Chicago. But, but the politics were corrupt, right? The, the elected politicians were in the pockets of the big businesses of the time, the people who wanted the streetcar franchises, right? So an administrative solution, a city manager was one of the progressive solutions um, that might sound anti-democratic in the abstract, but it's to get around the real limits of the democratic elections of that particular period, right? That we needed, we needed more expertise. And most importantly, we had to fight the influence of corporations and big money and dark money in the supposedly democratic elections uh, that we took so seriously. So equality and anti-corruption, I think, has to be a key uh, aspect of, of anything we talk about as a democratic approach to law. Thank you, Bill. Lisa, um, Bill's comments about, you know, um, you need to address equality, anti-corruption, brought me to a question from William Dempsey, who asks, it seems like to some of the panel, a major justification for administrative powers found in shortcomings of current democratic institutions. And he asked, to what extent is the administrative solution only temporary? And does the alleviation of some of the democratic roadblocks alleviate the need for an administrative solution? Why or why not? Well, I think as a matter of practical importance, the more functional Congress is, the less is the need for an administrative solution, or at least the same kind of administrative solution that relies on kind of resourcefulness, creativity, looking at old statutes in new ways, and so forth. I think the more functional they are, the less that's necessary. But to me, I, I've never justified administrative uh law or the administrative system based on gridlock in the sense that I think no matter how powerfully functioning Congress is, it has always and will always rely on an intermediary, on someone who can translate its goals and its um, stipulations into policy and importantly into on the ground policy. So it, it strikes me that a lot of people will say, well, we need to, even presidents have said this. It drives me crazy, crazy. Barack Obama, I've got a phone and a pen. I'll do it on my own unilaterally. No, it's never unilateral. Agencies are the creatures of Congress. They are charged by Congress, funded by Congress, set in motion by Congress, created by Congress. And so it strikes me that it's not just because we have gridlock that we have them. It's not because Congress isn't fully, fully functional. Can I also respond to something that Elon said just a moment ago? Because I think it's a really important point and, and illustrates something that I think is, is um, really significant about these principles we're talking about. Um, the FDA versus Brown and Williamson case, where the, the FDA tried to regulate tobacco and the Supreme Court said no, is a really important prince, illustration of the biased nature of the major questions principle. I think the biased nature as well as it, as it happens of non-delegation. But think about it. For years, the FDA had said in congressional testimony, all sorts of different legal fora, we do not have the authority to regulate tobacco. Nobody said, oh, you're answering a major question. You can't do that. You can't say you can't regulate because to say you can't regulate answers the major question about whether, whether the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act allows the regulation of tobacco. Then when they come and they say, oh, 
we do have the authority to regulate tobacco. Everybody says, oh, no, 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 that's a major question. You can't answer that question without clearer language from Congress. And the question I have is, why, why could they answer one question but not the other? They're the same dispute, the very same controversy. Does the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act cover tobacco? It's just their answer that's different. And so the, the implication is, and this goes right in a through line all the way to the cases on OSHA and um, the CDC on COVID, which is that if you don't regulate, you're fine. You're good to go. You're answering a question. It's the same question. But as long as you answer no, we don't have the power. We can't take that on. We can't help you, public. That's fine. But as soon as you say, yeah, I think we can do that. Yeah, yeah, we're good with that. We're going to try that then you're in trouble. I just think that embeds an incredible anti-regulatory valence into a doctrine that, and here I disagree with you, Elon, I think it's not a semantic, it's not a semantic or, as you put it, linguistic canon at all. It's a highly substantive canon that tells Congress, you know, Congress, we expect you, like a parent telling a child, we expect you to speak more clearly when you want to do that right? Speak up. We can't hear you right now. It puts Congress into this incredibly subordinate role, having the Supreme Court say, we know you said the literal words. We don't think you meant it, right? And I think that's the fight in all of this, is the major fight of today is actually between the courts and the executive as much as it is between the courts and Congress. Thank you, Lisa. Elon, uh, definitely interested in your thoughts in response to what Lisa was saying. And I also wanted to bring up your article, Beyond Formalism and Functionalism, where I think you talk a little bit about, I mean, is there, you know, I guess my question to you about that article is, is that, you know, is that, is there a middle way? You know, is it, is it a delegation versus a non-delegation? Is there another way of thinking about this? I think you conceive of it as exclusive versus non-exclusive rights. So um, yeah, again, please feel, feel, feel free to respond to Lisa and then maybe bring up, you know, is there another way we can be thinking about all this? Uh, so let me just say a couple of things. First, I, I generally agree with Professor Heinzelling, with Lisa, that uh, the major questions doctrine is highly problematic because what is major is in the eye of the beholder. And the reality is you often don't need the major questions doctrine to solve a lot of these cases, right? Now, you might disagree with me on the merits of this question, but if you go back to the FDA's regulatory authority, right, I thought the most compelling point that Justice O'Connor made in the majority there was, look, if the FDA has this authority, Okay, then cigarettes, okay, and nicotine would would be misbranded under the statute, and the statute because they are not safe and effective effective for their intended use. Okay, because that's what the statute is about: making drugs available for therapeutic uses, and they're safe and effective. But the FDA had found under the Clinton administration that they're not safe and effective, which is why we're trying to restrict the marketing. Well, if you have to misbrand them, if they're misbranded, they'd have to be removed from the market, right? But Congress has a bunch of statutes saying, no, cigarettes are an important part of the economy. Tobacco is an important part. We can't misbrand it, you know. And so it, it just it was an awkward fit with the structure of the statute. OK, you don't need major questions for that. You might disagree on the merits of that argument that it does or doesn't fit the statute. But that doesn't depend on major questions. Similarly, the, the can the EPA, through its its delegated authority to regulate pollutants, uh, which is a pretty broad definition when you really look at it, at least out of context. Can it regulate carbon dioxide? Uh, you might think the answer is yes. The Supreme Court said yes in Massachusetts v. EPA. Is this a major question? You know, politically, sure, of course. Carbon cap and trade, all of these things. 
uh, hugely controversial. Congress could never get its act together. Then the EPA assumed authority. Yeah, but but is that the way to decide the case? Uh, if you're a, a formalist or a textualist, you know, I, I think as we see in subsequent cases like Michigan against EPA, the problem with CO2 being a pollutant is that the rest of the act doesn't really work. It would require the EPA to regulate almost ordinary households because of the amount of CO2 that is distributed uh, and produced by uh, households. And so if you look at the definition of stationary source and how much they must pollute. And so the EPA even said, yes, CO2 is covered, but we're not going to apply it to all these things that the statute says we would have to apply our pollution regulations to because it just wouldn't work. It would be crazy. Is that major questions? You don't need it. It just doesn't fit the statute. Uh, and for what it's worth, the MCI case, the word modify, that was used in a deregulatory way. The FCC tried to deregulate AT&T and Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg agreed. They said, no, no, no. They, they didn't say major questions, right? What they said is, okay, this is, this is subsequently interpreting the case, but uh, Justice Scalia sub subsequently said, ordinarily, Congress does not hide elephants and mouse holes, right? It does not authorize the agency to do these big, important shifts and changes through cryptic language. And he cites the MCI case. And Justice Ginsburg agreed because the FCC tried to deregulate AT&T. And Justice Scalia said, no, you can't deregulate them under the cryptic term modify. The statute requires you to regulate them. So that was a proper use of what we today might call the major questions doctrine, but it was just a linguistic, what I call, I tell my students, the elephants in mouse holes canon. Right? Congress doesn't hide elephants uh, in mouse holes. So I, I think I think this is largely me agreeing with Lisa. Is that is that right? Should I just stop there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to see if you wanted to weigh in on your on your piece um, and whether you know there's another way to recast this debate. Uh, I appreciate your invoking uh, my recently accepted paper, but can I instead uh, throw some more fighting words out there uh, to see if there is any reaction from Bill and Lisa? So. Uh, this goes back to the question that you asked me before that I didn't answer about courts reviewing Congress's choices to delegate. Uh, and this, so, so Lisa mentioned that, but it also goes back to something that Bill said about capture. So what about this argument, right? What about public choice theory? Uh, here's why the court might want to police Congress's choices to delegate. Because Congress has perverse incentives to delegate. This is John Hart Ely, Democracy in Distressed in 1980. Look, Congress wants to pass the book. Why? Because it wins on both ends. On the front end, it can get brownie points from their constituents, right, for saying, we want clean air. Who can be opposed to that? We want clean air. We want clean water. And then, oh, the agency has to figure out, okay, who has to stop polluting? Who pays the cost? Who suffers the consequences? And then when the constituents complain, like, oh, the agency is doing X, Y, and Z to implement the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act, which, by the way, maybe are bad examples because they're actually quite detailed statutes, right? So I'm, I'm sort of being a little flippant here with those particular examples. But then on the back end, the agency says, oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. I'll lobby the agency on behalf of you, my constituent. So I went on the front end by enacting this great law that who could oppose clean air. And then I went on the back end when I, when I lobbied the agency for my constituents who suffer from it. So, you know, if we worry about regulatory capture and and corruption, why not public choice theory more broadly? And might public choice theory actually be an argument for why the courts should be policing what Congress chooses to delegate? I guess that's for both Bill and Lisa. But but Lana, you're asking the questions. <laughs> no, it's a great it's a great question, Elon. Um, Bill would love your thoughts uh, in this final round. And 
And also feel free to add any other points you might have about, you know, why this period in particular, uh, the period in your book is really important for us to study and to know about. Great. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And thank you for that, that opportunity. Um, no, I don't think public choice theory is the answer. Uh, you know, as, as I finished this book, uh, I think returning to kind of uh, really the distinctive American tradition, the only way to think about problems uh, is, is democratically and pragmatically. I mean, critical realism. So public choice theory has a history, an intellectual history. We know when it rises up within the academy. And it, it, is, a, it, it is a part and parcel of a series of new formalisms, new formal theories, uh, which again, I think on the ground, uh, don't deal with the reality and the complexity. And again, if you just deal with judicial review of administrative action and what judges say, and then come up with a public choice theory as to try to figure out what Congress do, does, um, the people who really study empirically Congress and the courts um, in detail in the archives over time, find that those theories really uh, are not as helpful as you might think, and that we have to do these the institutional economists, these detailed uh, histories of economy, of society, of politics, and know the history in detail in order to, to really understand um, what's going on in this particular period. Um, but I guess, you know, in, in terms of uh, your question about why I, I kind of wrote, wrote the book, um, I, you know, I am, I'm a late baby boomer. And you know uh, that was the period in which critical realism died out. And they're for, for, for important reasons, right? The U.S. fought really important mid-century battles with totalitarianism of left and right, both fascism and communism in World War II and in the Cold War. And out of that came this thing called American exceptionalism uh, of the United States as a kind of land of liberty, of freedom, uh, very different from the kind of police state traditions, the regulatory traditions that dominated, destroyed Europe in the middle of the 20th century. Um, I believed that for a while. You know, I, I was force-fed this in, in, in grade school, uh, on through high school. And as soon as I started to do the most basic kind of empirical or historical research into U.S. history, it falls apart at, at every scene. I mean, it's just, it, it was an ideological construct, perhaps necessary in these hot war times, uh, but it's a fiction, it's a myth, and I think we need, uh, like John Dewey and Jane Addams would say, you know, if we're going to start thinking like adults again about important questions. We got to do good research, and we got to uh, stop living by way of these kind of fairy tales that we tell ourselves about the past and the present and possibly the future. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your thoughts on your book. Um, highly recommend to everyone out there to read it. And I think you're working on a book on the founding now, currently, right? As to round out the, the trio. The yeah, trilogy. I wouldn't recommend this to to new researchers out there, but I, you know, I, I, I have one question, and I'm really trying to answer it. So I'm go. I, I went out of order, like the Star Wars. You know, I so I, I started in the middle, then I went to this period, the period uh, to the New Deal to get to the New Deal. But I really think, for reasons I think we've we've all talked about here today, that um, really re the, the founding, as many historians have been saying now for uh, you know for about twenty five years at thirty, it needs to be redone. I mean, we have very strange views about what the founders were up to. So I've already begun to do some new research there. And one of the things I I'm not the first to discover it, but I started working on okay, as soon as the British leave, right, the legislatures, they're going to set up provincial congresses. We the people will set up provincial congresses. But before there are provincial congresses, there are committees of safety and inspection. There are administ We learned about them in grade school as committees of correspondence, as if this was a literary event, the American Revolution as a, a discussion of political philosophy. Nonsense, right? There are problems on the ground that had to be met with and over and over again 
uh, in the Western tradition, the American tradition, uh, administration and administrative discretion is proving useful to solving public problems if, in fact, we want to solve public problems. Lisa, your final thoughts on anything that we talked about today, and I'm also interested in your perspective on the future um, of regulation based on where you see uh, either the courts going, um, how Congress is currently acting, and um, yeah, any final thoughts from, from you? Yeah, I, th- I think the problem of uh, accountability and responsibility is profound, and nothing I said should um, be taken otherwise. I think it would be wonderful if Congress were more functional, were acting more on our large problems. I, I, I would welcome that uh, very much. So to me, the question, again, is a comparative one. Between Congress's choices about delegations of authority to tackle major problems that we're facing right now, who do I want? to make those choices. Do I want Congress or do I want the completely unaccountable courts? And here I would say that at least members of Congress, at least in theory, are accountable for their own lack of accountability. That is, if they pass statutes that don't mean anything, that are just symbolic, and they pass the buck and on and on down the line, at least people who elect them can see that and maybe take them to account for it. That's not true of the courts. And so if we leave this with the courts, that even the lack of accountability is not something that the courts are accountable for. So in a fight between Congress and the courts, I think that in in the cases we're talking about, in the kinds of cases we're talking about, I would prefer to leave judgments about delegations to administrative agencies and the power of administration agencies largely uh, to Congress. And if we think about the nature of the organizations and what Elon um, called uh, capture, think about the court today, incredibly insular body, people of very, very similar backgrounds, even the same educations, right? The, at least I'll even say uh, in the conservatives, mostly handpicked by one organization, the Federalist Society, right? That, that, that to me, we are, we are beholden to, hostage to almost, the public policy ideology of nine people on the Supreme Court or when it comes down to it, five or six. And right now, they're poised, and I don't think this is an overstatement, poised to change the way the government operates. And uh, I, I find that deeply uh, troubling. And yet, I will predict right now, it's going to happen. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Elon, final word to you. Feel free to to provide any closing thoughts on any anything we've discussed and share maybe your perspective on the future of uh, regulation in America. Sure. And thanks again. This was really fun uh, to do. I guess I will talk about that article that I've got forthcoming, this Beyond Formalism and Functionalism and Separation of Powers Law. I don't think the world's going to end, um, at least if the justices read my paper, uh, because the claim, and they did, and they one has read one, you know, so I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe there's hope, but the claim in this paper is, look, I do think this, I, this formalist idea that the government power divides into three parts, legislative, executive, judicial, all power is one or the other, and we have to figure out which is which, give it to the respective institution and the administrative state's unconstitutional because it exercises all three kinds of power when it shouldn't. I do think that's actually not correct as an originalist matter. What I claim in this paper is that, yes, look, it's true. If you look at text structure and and history in particular, those sources fence off 
three sort of domains of exclusive powers, some things that only the executive can do and that Congress and the courts never can, certain things that only the courts can do and the other two branches can't, and arguably some things that only Congress can do, you know, that the others can't. What, what the, you know, how big that category of exclusive power will depend on your theory of non-delegation, your reading of the historical sources. But I think a lot of government power is non-exclusive. I really think in its nature, in its characteristics, uh, government, a lot of government power partakes in legislative and or executive and or judicial qualities. And with respect to that, if the executive or the judiciary can't exercise inherently some of that power, then certainly Congress has authority to uh, to assign and distribute the exercise of those powers to other branches. I think a lot of early examples of non-delegation, I think a lot of current examples of of delegation uh, would probably pass muster, you know, under this idea of non-exclusive power. But the difference, again, is I do think there are boundaries. I do think there is real substance to these categories of exclusive power. Uh, But, um, you know, I think a lot of government power is non-exclusive and the the court's going to figure that out one way or another because there's only so much uh, um, uh, that it's going to be able to do, I think. Thank you so much, Bill Novak, Lisa Heinzerling, and Elon Worman for being here, for discussing this really interesting and important topic. Um, thank you to everyone in the audience for, um, for being here, for participating, for submitting your questions. We hope to see you at a future program. Uh, be sure to check our website for the video, for transcripts, for resources, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center, our podcast, where we'll be sharing out the audio of this program. Thanks, take care, and hope to see you soon. This episode was produced by Tanea Tauber, John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, and me, Melody Rowell. It was engineered by Dave Stotts. Visit constitutioncenter.org debate to see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. If you like the show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Melody Rowell.